Welcome to Series 3 of Not True But Useful, a podcast from Cheek by Jowl. I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins, and every week I'm chatting to artistic directors Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod, looking back at four decades of their productions all across the world. Together, we'll take a look at what these plays have to tell us about the messy business of being human. Our play this week is Thomas Middleton's The Revenger's Tragedy, and here's a quick synopsis before we begin. The play is set in Milan, ruled over by a corrupt duke, who's assaulted and then killed a woman called Gloriana. Gloriana's fiancé, Vindice, vows revenge. With the help of his brother, Hippolito, Vindice infiltrates the court, disguised as a pimp called Piato. He hatches a plot to get close to Lucurioso, one of the duke's sons. Lucurioso employs him to win over a chaste virgin, and Vindice is horrified to discover that this is his own sister, Castizza. He dresses as a priest to test both Castizza and his mother with Lucurioso's suggestion and his mother agrees to sell Castizza. Meanwhile, the Duke's stepson is condemned for raping another woman. When the Duke refuses to intervene on his behalf, the Duchess decides to get her revenge. She starts an affair with the Duke's illegitimate son, Spurio, who wants to take the throne for himself. To distract Lucurioso from pursuing Castizza, Vendice tells him about Spurio and the Duchess's relationship. Lucurioso tries to reveal the affair to his father, the Duke, but it all goes wrong and he ends up condemned to death for treason. The Duke eventually relents and decides to pardon him, but two of his other sons, Ambitioso and Supervacuo, intervene and change the message to the prison in order to get rid of their brother's claim to the throne. The false order gets misunderstood at the prison and the young stepson gets beheaded instead. This leads to a spiralling set of revenges and counter-revenges in the Duke's family, culminating with Hippolito and Vindice assassinating the Duke, staging it as if the pretend Piato is the culprit. Lucurioso becomes the new Duke, but at his coronation, Hippolito and Vindice arrive to kill him too. Ambitioso, Supervacuo and Spurio turn on and murder each other. In the aftermath of this bloodthirsty party, Vindice finally admits what he's done and is condemned to death. And now over to Declan and Nick. Hello Declan and Nick. Hello Lucy. So we met this week to discuss your production of The Revenger's Tragedy, which started its life to great success at the end of 2019 in Milan. And the next stage of its life was a run in the Barbican in London in Believe It or Not, early March of 2020. On our last night at the Barbican, as is usual, the actors all came round to our flat and had a kind of party, not infringing social distancing, because we were kind of innocent in those days, at March the 7th, 2020. Then the message came through that the next week's run in Madrid was cancelled and the, the next uh, run in Paris was cancelled. So they all sort of flew back to different parts of Italy. <laughs> and then later on, we revived it. And that was immediately cancelled again as soon as we started to open. And then the third time round, it was cancelled again, but we, we filmed it. So it was, it was filmed under social distancing circumstances in, in Milan, with me and Nick sort of on Zoom, trying to direct on Zoom. So it was amazing 
to get the chance to see this incredibly vivid, very funny and very violent production of The Revengers Tragedy. Now, we've talked a little bit about The Revengers Tragedy in season one, but just as a quick recap, Nick, could you describe what the production looked like? The production was designed for the Piccolo Theatre in Milan, uh, which is not so much huge, but very, very wide. And the way we chose to go was to build a sort of mammothly wide barn door right across the stage, leaving quite a shallow playing area of only about five metres below the door. Upstage, we were able to project images behind the barn doors, which changed according to the space and other, and other things. And the thinking behind it was, this was Vindice's own fantasy of his journey, expressed possibly in a television studio. There were sort of producers, some of the actors played sort of producers within that. And the actor playing Vindice led the whole ensemble and told his own story. Which really tapped into our involvement as the audience, choosing to spend our evening watching human pain and suffering. So the whole design seemed to really call on our responsibility as watchers in this scenario. And it's laughing at human pain and suffering as well, because it's extremely comic. So the, the, these Grand Guignol scenes of bloodshed and terrible things are, are served up with a kind of comic wink. But this barn door I found really fascinating, because it reminded me actually of a lot of the conversations we've been having about your sets, in which you play with the dimension of the space that exists. So rather than creating an illustration of the space of the play, you look at the dimension of the theatre that you're working with and either extend the horizon or push it right forward like you did with this barn door to create this kind of narrow four stage. It seems to be about squeezing space, making space more dynamic. Well, hopefully it does make it dynamic, but what it did allow is a solid background so that we could hear the actors because I'm afraid in that space often the actors... I've got into the habit, I think, of using head mics, which we wanted to avoid at, at all costs. So it gave them a sounding board to project their voices against, and we never had an acoustic problem. So part of the thinking was simply to solve that problem. But it gave us actually a very, very wide space, and that, I think, is as dynamic as giving it a lot of depth. It also gave you the opportunity to do something that is basically stolen from Greek theatre, which is that you could roll these doors to one side and thrust on a scene on a rolling platform. Bam! It just landed on you in the middle of the stage. Incredibly powerful to be able to do that. Yes. Essentially, I felt, and I've mentioned this before in the previous podcast, that Middleton does need help with the space because he doesn't bother with that much. And so we did need to locate it clearly in the palace, in the house of Vindice's mother, essentially, and also a sort of secret house where the murder of the Duke is committed. Though, incidentally, it's, but that's also very confusing because if you look at the play, suddenly, when we go back to that house later to discover the body of the Duke disguised Piatto, we discovered amazingly the courtiers are just around the corner as well. So somehow that's in the palace Two, which is, nobody's commented on that. So <laughs> we give Middleton a few notes on that. If I so it's like a slightly mouldy bits around the edge of Middleton, which I kind of love. It's what makes these plays really human, I think. So 
let's talk a little bit more just about this head mic issue. Why don't you like miking actors? I think any mediation between the actor and the audience is is not good. You want to be in a room with somebody, and if they're miked, it's just another little barrier. It also means the actor is out of control because they don't need to reach the audience. I get worried by mics. I don't quite know where the voice is coming from because it's coming from a speaker somewhere else. And then when they turn up stage, they continue speaking. It makes no difference at all. And you can still hear them crystal clear. And it's sort of very odd for the audience. It's this idea of efficiency and one click and delivery. And I want to hear every word. But actually in real life, you don't hear every word. And in real life, you don't see everything. Things that certain things are occluded from view. Things have different pitches so that the, the audience has to readjust. The audience has to work. I mean, you can't relax in the theatre. The audience has to work. And so a lot of the work you do seems to be about making sure that this relationship between the body on stage and the bodies in the audience, that there's an electric current running between the two. Exactly. It's not a work of art, it's an act of art. And the audience is just as much part of the performance as the actors are. And the actors have to understand that, and it's a dialogue. So anything that comes between the two, like a microphone, is, is undesirable. If sometimes it has to happen for a special reason, a special effect, that's absolutely fine. But as a kind of general creeping norm, it really worries me. But what's so interesting about this is once again, when we're talking about design, we're starting with solving problems. We've got to solve a problem, which is that Middleton is very vague when he talks about space. And you've got to solve a problem, which are these big radical scene changes between hugely different locations. And you've got to solve a problem, which is that the Piccolo Theatre has got a really problematic acoustic and you don't want to use mics. And out of problem solving, you come up with sets that have such enormous potential which you then presumably discover in rehearsal, because then, you know, these barn doors became this incredible site of anxiety and tension as people moved from behind to in front of. I'm particularly thinking of the scene when the youngest son realises he's going to die and is being dragged off stage and is clinging to these edges of these doors, practically in a crucifix position, you know, trying to drag himself back onto the forestage. Kind of like a playground for your actors, like a climbing frame. Well, I think that's the joy of doing theatre, is that it is very, very pragmatic, and it's very collaborative, and you work with people, and you solve problems. I personally would be terrified as a, an artist if I was faced with just a blank canvas. I mean, I can't imagine any more the more scary. In theatre, you start off with problems and you need to solve them. And you've got the text, you've got the actors, you've got a whole host of, there are always problems, but a lot of them are. And um, yeah, it's a problem-solving business and it's very pragmatic. I mean, but that's what's so cruel to say to a child, just create, or just say to an actor, just create, or to a writer, just create, here's a blank piece of paper. Just do anything. Of course, you can't because we live in a relational world. And we can't possibly create anything un unless we can see something outside us. I've got to think about the audience, I've got to think about the acoustic, I've got to think about all sorts of things. And the more I'm hemmed in, the more free I become. Creating from nothing is bullshit because it's all about solving a problem. Any poem anybody writes is not just a passive thing that I do, to, you know, put under my pillow at night. It's a pretty desperate act. There's a need to communicate, a need to share... And I think a kind of fear of loneliness, really, that motivates all art. So to actually say to somebody, just do it, is really destructive. And it's also, I think, one of the things that makes making theatre so wonderful mm. is that you get to walk into a room with a group of artists mm. and say, 
I don't know, let's solve it together. And I've heard you say that one of the most useful things you can say in the rehearsal room is, I don't know. No, I know. I mean, I can help, you know, if an actor doesn't know what a line means, but I'd ask the actors to explain to me what the lines meant because I think that's the most humane thing to do and the thing that is most likely to release the actor's sacred vitality. But also that it's a sort of act of anti-loneliness that we get to walk into a rehearsal room to make theatre to explore the things that we don't know the answers to. Exactly, absolutely. And if we could explain it, it would be dead, which is why you can't explain it. So not being able to explain what you've done is really good. Great, because it means you're touching on the mysterious business of being a human, which is what we say at the beginning of this podcast. Well, I think that's probably quite a good idea. And I think that's a pretty good way to think about art. And if you can explain it, you might as well write an essay. Let them read that, you know. No, but what we can do is we can investigate the space of the experience. That sounds that's a bit of a jawbreaker. But you, you, you draw people's attention to the experience that might be there. Um, and that's, that's what's so interesting, because the play is just words that are a reaction to experiences. So if you were going to point out what you think are the great human mysteries or the human experiences being revealed at the heart of the Revengers tragedy, what do you think those are? Well, I think one of them is the problem of being right. He is holding a skull when he comes on stage. So he's quoting Hamlet, which was a huge hit. And there would have been knowing laughs from the audience. And then he talks about the incredible decadence and corruption of this court, um, the complete lawlessness of the state, and the fact that the Duke has actually raped and murdered his fiancée. And to begin with, you can easily think, oh my God, he's right, he must punish the Duke. And then we maybe need to have a bit of pause for thought and think actually being right is often quite a burden because what do you do with right? And he slowly unhinges um, by doing what he believes to be right. So Vindice, the Avenger, his name means the Avenger, he's totally right to want vengeance, but it also destroys him. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. The big, there's a big problem in being right. What do you do with being right? And it's what he does with his right that becomes more and more questionable, quite terrifying, and then he goes out of control. I mean, it's for every individual to decide. It's, it's really complicated. What do you do when you are right? If doing the right thing is going to make more bloodshed, and it's, it's morally complicated... And he goes gung-ho, Vindicia, he involves his brother in this plot, and he does extraordinary things. He kills masses of people, by the end he gets carried away with it. I think it shows what can happen if we abandon ourselves to our self-righteousness. So would you say it's asking us to have a slightly more complex relationship with ourselves, to re-examine ourselves when we feel that we are right, and to take that seriously and really watch ourselves i think above all yes it asks us to look at ourselves and when we are right and when we get self-righteous when we get very angry but this terrible thing has been done to gloriana that the skull that he has on stage his fiance he carries her around in a, in a macabre way and in a way he is right to do that but what do you do with right in real life we're called on to judge, we're called on to hate, we get called on to hate a lot on the internet and so on. But it's really good if one can just stop hating for just a little bit, open a little window, so you can actually see what's happening. Somebody said recently about Trump and Boris Johnson that, you know, if we could only stop hating them for one minute, we might work out why they're so popular. 
<laughs> can I hear? I can tell you we're as extreme on that as anybody else. We're yelling at the radio. But if you can just give yourself a little breath, a breather away from judgmentalism, because if you're if you're full of hate, you're really not going to see what's happening. One of the dreadful problems about being right is it's delicious. We love being right. It also means we can punish people. That's even more delicious. And it's addictive, but it's corrupting. And we have to think about where that might be leading us. I'm going to steal a quote from a couple of episodes that you said, all good plays complicate our relationship with ourselves. Yes, I think that's true. It asks us to look back at ourselves, you know, and if we do end up judging, then quickly stand in front of that mirror and look at it. But sometimes we have to act because there are some terrible, outrageous things happening in the world, like things that have to be stopped that we must do something about. But very often when we get enraged about things, it's our own personal rage that's getting mixed in it as well. And we and that will weaken us. Do you know, I think that if you have a, an opponent in a battle, it's quite important in a funny kind of way not to feel superior to the person you're fighting against. It's very hard to resist that. You need to pay attention to the enemy, to the, to the bad thing that's happening in the world, and look at it as coolly as possible. And so these plays are really radical if... The leads, these messy leads that do terrible things like Macbeth or in this play, like Vindice, Mm. who kills a lot of people. Mm. If you're able to put them on stage Mm. and watch them and think that could be me. Yeah. Then they're really radical plays. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the reason these plays have survived and we're very privileged to be able to work with them is because there is humanity in them. And that's constantly fascinating. If they were simple melodramas and morally totally judgmental, they would not be played anymore. That's for sure. So we're watching a play where Vendice is both right and a murderer, and those two things can coexist in the same person. Put it this way. If someone murdered Nick, I'd want them torn apart with knives. But I would expect society to protect me and other people from my own worst impulses. I think if you get people to imagine that, oh, but the thing about me is I'm so evolved, I wouldn't want to do anything. Why would you want to be cruel? Why would you want to punish the murderer? Because it's a human thing to want to do. But we rely on other people to stop us doing these things. Well, do you think that's another thing that this play taps into, is that the very ugly human compulsion for violent justice Mm. when a wrong is done is actually something that we should question in ourselves. Well, I think we have a drive to punish and to be cruel. I think that does exist within us, and it's maybe it's preserved our lives in the past, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we definitely need to question it. But you question it, you don't suppress it. You take it out and look at it and stick it back in the wardrobe. And that's one of the things that we can do in the theatre. We can take out these, these things and look at them and put them back in. But the danger is to think, oh, no, no, I'm evolved. I, I don't have these feelings anymore. The thing about me, you know, is I could never be cruel. This is, I think, a very worrying thing. To a certain degree, things have to be repressed, but you have to see that you're repressing them. So I, I'm not going to act on it. But I think that's the healthy position that, you know... I'd like to kill that person, but I'm not going to. It's the but I'm not going to that's really important. So do you think this is why we have such a continuing interest in staging plays like this? I mean, this is a 400-year-old play that keeps coming back and back and back. And do you think it's something about the fact that it's actually really healthy to take a good look 
at the really dark parts of what it means to be a human so that we can process them. Absolutely. We, I mean, there needs to be a trigger warning before every play you see in the theatre that you're going to see something that's going to disturb you. In one. It might be disturbingly funny. You know, it could be you know, it could be all sorts of things, you know, because it's, it's very health-making for us. So it's a safe place where we can sit together and admit that being a human is not a simple or clean thing to do. And if we're going to live as well as we can and evoke the most responsibility in our lives, we have to be attentive to the vindiches in us. Yeah, we have to look after each other in society. And we have to say no to many of our impulses. You just have to say no, no. And we don't like saying no to ourselves. So it's, it becomes a more efficient shortcut to think, do you know, I don't have those feelings anymore. So, like, Angelo has no sexual desires anymore, so he's fine. So he's not dangerous. And this is a thing that we talked about in last week's episode with Measure for Measure. Angelo, who believes himself to be the ultimate civilised, you know, man of the law, believes himself to have no sexual desires, and as a result of that repression, he erupts in the most horrifying way and does the most terrible things in that play. But the other thing that we should pay attention to in this is that Vendice has the name Avenger. That's what Vendice means in Italian. He is the Avenger. And a lot of the characters in this play have got spectacular names, which indicate who they are, like Lusurio, the luxurious one, Super Vacuo, the, um, the kind of ditzy son. Um, and uh, what do you think this play has to tell us about whether we have kind of essential characteristics of being ourselves, like we have the, you know, the man who is the Avenger, the man who's the stupid one, the man who's the luxurious one. Yes, I think on Middleton's part, that's a kind of retro joke from the Vice plays of 100 years, 75 years earlier, when people would come on playing, you know, envy, sloth, arrogance, whatever you have. I think it tells us a lot, though, about transformation. Throughout the play, in order to bring about his increasingly complicated plan of revenge, Vindice puts on many disguises. Um, halfway through the play, he thinks it's a very good idea to catch out his mother and his sister as well. So he starts to play God in his disguises. So it's a good idea to um, put his mother in place too, and a good idea to sort, sort out his sister. And he play, does outrageous things to both his mother and his sister because he feels sort of superior. And that's one of the problems of feeling right, letting self-righteousness oxygenate us a lot, getting off on the punishment, getting off on the blaming. People do suddenly become God. It's not just Vindice, it's quite a common thing to think you've got. And we see that slowly, by being right, he's slightly becoming like God, because he's the guy who can dispense justice. And that's the groovy thing about dispensing justice, is because it makes you feel like God. It's a great big narcotic high. So do you think maybe Vindice's problem is that he is trying to live up to the brand of his name too much. He's so attached to this idea of vengeance that it actually destroys him. I mean, I think, no, I think the name is just a kind of um, handle on him for the audience to get us into the play. I think what's happening in the character of Vendice is much, much more subtle than that and develops throughout the play. It's not as much trying to live up to his name. I think what Middleton's showing us is how revenge is merely nostalgia and how destructive it is. And also, these plays that seem to be about things that are so forgotten are in fact incredibly modern. I mean, more than one film producer has said to me that Hollywood runs entirely on revenge. One thing I, I would like to point out about these plays, it's very funny, whenever we do a revenge tragedy, they're, they're always incredibly popular. And people always say, why, why do you think these plays are suddenly so popular now? And 
The truth is that I've been asked that question for 42 years. It's very interesting that people forget that we're always doing them. I think it's to do with the fact that we quite like to see the cruelty up there on stage, because if it's up there on stage, the cruelty is not going to be in my own heart. The mess is out there, not in me. But you see it on the stage and then you maybe think about your own reaction and it's disturbing in The Revengers Tragedy how he gets carried away and the guy who you kind of are rooting for to begin with goes slowly off the rails. Well, not that slowly, go quite fast off the rails and does unspeakable things, kind of like in our name because we've kind of like identified with him. So we talked a lot last week about how working with Russian actors meant that you were working in a creative infrastructure of having standing companies of actors who'd been working together for a really long time. And that created creative opportunities and juice for you in the rehearsal room. In this production, you were working with Italian actors. Did you find anything in the Italian way of making theatre or the creative infrastructure around the Teatro Piccolo that was really exciting to work with that you don't get in the British theatre, for example? It was just wonderful working with them. It was a group of actors that I'd been working with and we'd kind of found each other because I did a series of, I think, three workshops at the Biennale in Venice over 12 years beforehand. And these actors kind of emerged from that. No, we had a wonderful time working there. We were extremely well looked after. And we were able to do our Into the Woods in a centre which the Ronconi had developed in the middle of Umbria in the heat of a broiling hot August, I remember. We had a week, ten days there with everybody, isolated in beautiful countryside. And and, um, I think at the end of that, we actually had the structure of piece, i.e. beginning with I, 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 and ending with I, I, I. And so we were able to come back to Milan and direct it in a more conventional way. So I, I, I was this over-the-top song, which they all danced on stage and off stage to at the beginning and the end of this production. This, I guess, can-can line of the whole company coming on and off that kind of framed it in this weirdly comic, uncomfortably comic image. Well, it's sort of like Italian TV music. One of the inspirations behind the whole thing was um, Italian horror movies. Here we call them giallo. You know, when we were young, we used to see Dario Argento and see things like Suspiria and so on. Very often very cheap Italian horror movies with black gloves coming around a door always. And um, they said to me, ah, Ardeco, you mean splatter. (laughs) 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 It's funny we've got an Italian word for it, giallo, but there's this sort of cheap schlock horror. It was great fun to do that, actually. What do you think was so appealing to you about this kind of nearly comic schlock horror approach to terrible violence well i i love as you know that is it a comedy is it a tragedy are we supposed to laugh are we supposed to scream we don't quite know what it is and i think that's really good i think you need you need experience to do it well because you're not just laughing at violence you're laughing at looking at yourself laughing at violence is it real is it not you lose your bearings a bit the theater's no place to relax nick could you tell me about your favorite moment in staging the Revengers tragedy. I think my favourite moment was, I'm afraid, the actual murder of the Duke, because it's quite elaborate system of a chair and a foot pump and a necklace of blood. We could have the whole company clustered around watching this, and some of them, of course, were involved, i.e. the actor behind 
could be pumping the blood as the, the throat was cut. So the actual detail of creating that was, was fun. I have to admit it was fun. Everything up until that point had been like a kind of game, often kind of pastiche feeling around the actual violence. And then this moment when you actually gave us blood was really shocking because it felt like the rules had changed. You had a sequence of blood. You had the eyelids cut off first and then you had the tongue cut out and we needed something to convincingly flop onto the floor like a piece of meat. I think we actually used fresh meat in the end, um, concealed somewhere. And then his throat was cut. So it was quite a complicated process. And it really brought you up short because it really wasn't funny anymore. It was really horrifying suddenly that you gave us full yes. like, horror fest. Which you could half see because Raffaele Esposito playing Hippolito could conceal most of the action as he, as he did the cutting from the audience. What made it particularly nauseating was via the camera and the closer you got, the less distinct it became. So that's very good because the, the secret is to hide, you know, not to show. So it's more what the audience was imagining was happening. It was important. It was thrown mammoth size on the screen behind. So you could choose exactly which eyelid you were going to focus on you, but you couldn't quite tell what it was, perhaps because it was so big. And also because it was partly obscured by the doorways. You were also getting snapshots of the close-up. And it was so wonderful because you appeared to be revealing everything to us with a close-up camera that was uber-realistic and at the same time still playing with how much we could see, forcing you to imagine things because it felt like you were dangling so much in front of us, but you weren't really. Well, I'm glad, Lucy. It's great. It's great frightening people. It's the last piece of theatre before we went into lockdown and it really stayed with me. So thank you very much for that. And Declan, what was your favourite moment? I liked it at the end when the new Duke, Lucerioso, when he says, um, alla grande, and on come the dancers for what is the mask in the original. And we stage as a reprise of Ai 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 that they all came on in this line dance and all the murders happened out of this dance. So the whole thing degenerated into a kind of stabbing game, but it was sort of, they were really dying. I mean, the Duke, when he was stabbed, he used to go on dancing on the floor on his back. And there was something terrifying about this mindless I.I.I. happening with people actually dying on stage or representing dying on stage. And I, I found that terribly disturbing. The actors did it and showed it to me and I said, great, we'll have that. Since March of last year, you've also had to re-rehearse it. You'd had to rehearse it so that the actors were all socially distanced from each mm -hmm. other, which seems an impossibility for a play like this in which there are incredible physical struggles happening on stage. Mm-hmm. That must have been an incredible challenge. Yes, that was quite a challenge. Um, that, the, the sex scene between the Duke and the Duchess, um, socially distanced, was that was quite that was quite difficult. But we have an absolutely wonderful assistant, Francesco Bianchi. The actors did incredibly well. So I always feel that you can never quite kill theatre. Whatever happens, no theatre will survive our best attempts to destroy it. And so hopefully the Revengers tragedy will be back on a stage soon, I hope. <laughs> I hope so. It'll be lovely. Great. That's all for this week and we're going to meet again next week to discuss our next play. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Lucy. Thank you very much, Lucy. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Not True But Useful. As always, if you want to take a look at images of Declan and Nick's production of this play, 
Follow the link in the podcast notes. The theme music for this series was composed by Paddy Kaneen for Cheek by Jowl's production of The Winter's Tale, with additional music in this episode by Gianluca Masiti for The Revengers Tragedy. Join us next week when we talk much ado about nothing. Until then, stay well. Stay cool.